Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Morning. I ask you to join me in Jonah chapter 4 this morning. We realize all along that Jonah has been struggling with a disease. It's a common disease. Most Christians have it to varying degrees. In fact, most religious people have it. Jonah chapter 4, we find that while it can be terminal, it doesn't have to be. You'll probably see some of these symptoms in your own life. It's definitely contagious, but the good news is is the disease is contagious, but once you find the cure, the cure is also contagious. So if you don't consider yourself religious, you'll probably still see some of these symptoms in your life at the end of the day, both religious and non-religious, even irreligious people are quite honestly made of the same stuff. If you remember, God told Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Nineveh finally responds to that message. They committed to change their ways from the king all the way down to the cattle. And the Bible says that the destruction or the overturning that, uh, that God was going to do to Nineveh, He made a decision to relent and He would not do it. And that's how chapter 3 ends. Chapter 4 begins... We're going to read verse 1. But it, that it, is God relenting from destroying Nineveh. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The uh, Hebrew, he was angry, is actually a phrase, not just a word. The phrase is ra-hara. It's very interesting because it tells us, so there's different types of anger. If, if someone is being treated unjustly or in an unjust way, then you would be angry and yet sin not. In fact, Jesus even said that we can be angry and sin not. So we know that anger, sometimes we can be angry for the right reasons or to be angry over something that would make God angry and, and God is able to get angry yet without sin. And so we kind of got an understanding that because this displeases Jonah and creates anger, that Jonah's anger is not coming from a great place. But when you go all the way back to it displeasing into the Hebrew originally, we know for sure that Jonah is not in a good place. Raharah actually means with what kind of anger Jonah has. So the Hebrew is that this is an evil. Ra is the word evil in Hebrew. Harah means anger. This is an evil anger. All right? An evil anger. This is an anger that is kindling from a, from a small little spark and kindling to a flame. It is exploding inside of him. This makes Jonah a man on fire. And he is burning and it's growing and it's kindling over inside of him. It's really interesting to me that as, I, as you look at well, God looked at evil Nineveh, all right, for generations now, they've been the w- wickedest people on earth. And God looks at evil Nineveh before they repented, and it says that he was filled with anger. His anger had come full with them. 
But then after they repent, God relents, right? But after they repent, Jonah looks at repentant Nineveh and still sees it as evil, and that's what causes him to be angry. Do you see how different Jonah's character is from God's character? God gets angry when he sees sin. Jonah gets angry with repentance when he sees evil people repent. So it's, it's interesting the hypocrisy. Jonah is the one who calls himself by God's name. And he is less like God than brand new followers of God. He's dealing with anger for sure. So... Look and see how he deals with that anger. In verse 2 and 3, it says he prayed to the Lord. Now, this is really interesting to me. It's kind of a side note. But, uh, Jonah, if you look at, the, at the, all four chapters of Jonah, Jonah goes through a lot of dilemmas, right? I mean, there's a lot of ups and downs, quite literally, in Jonah's life. Uh, lots of confusion, lots of distractions, lots of disobedience. But there's only two times in the entire experience of Jonah in these four verses where he prays. One of them, he's praying when his back is against the stomach lining of the fish, right? Uh, so, you know, he prays there. He has nothing else, nowhere else to go. He is completely desperate. He knows he's going to die. And he's praying just this desperation prayer. Uh, maybe God will hear me. And, and, uh, and so he prays out of frustration. Here, he's praying out of anger. Now, what kind of prayer life is it? If, if, it would make sense that if God were to tap Jonah on the shoulder and say, hey, I'd like, I'd like to get the gospel to Nineveh because it's, it's time for them to experience renewal. I, it is my goal that people everywhere experience forgiveness of sin. And so, Jonah, I'm tapping you. I want you to go to Nineveh and restore that city. Jonah would say, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to bestow blessing upon the nations, to use me as your vessel, your prophet. I mean, this would, make, this would be a great time to pray. Or when he's in the middle of the storm, he could say, oh, Lord, please, I was wrong. If you'll just get me out of this, that would be a good time to pray. Or when God spits him up on the, on the shore of the ocean, Jonah would say, oh, thank you, Lord. Or whenever he preaches... In the middle of the city center, and he says, You're going to be overturned in 40 days. Thank you, Lord, that they are repenting and they're not going to kill me. This would be great times to pray. But Jonah finds times to pray when he has nothing else to do, when he's at the end of his rope, when he has zero control. And I wonder if, in some ways, Jonah prays like many of us. We pray when we are hopeless, helpless. Frustrated at the end of our rope, got nothing left. And we pray in those times where we are completely only out of control. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray during those times, but I am going to say this that when you do pray that way, what you are revealing is that your prayers are only selfish. If, if Jonah could have prayed, God, if God loves Nineveh, certainly God would love us. Amen? I mean, certainly, if God loves Nineveh, then there's still hope for Israel. And we get excited about that. Lord, you are so gracious and you are so compassionate. We give you praise. We give you glory. And we're able to capture some of God's heart when we pray for other people. When we pray outside of our own issue. But Jonah is only praying inside of his issues. Which means that Jonah can only see himself. Jonah is very, very selfish. And I think sometimes when we pray 
only about our own issues, it really reveals how selfish we truly are. Now again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray whenever you're frustrated or confused or at the end of your rope. What I am saying is if you limit your prayers to those desperate times in your life, you'll, you may get a hold of God, but you'll never get a hold of God's heart. You get a hold of God, but you won't catch a glimpse of His mission for the world. And I think most Christians pray for their own circumstances, but not outside of them. And we are called as believers to recognize that God doesn't only have a, a plan for our chaos, but He has a plan for every moment of our day. We should be living in a relationship with Him, not just responding to the issues of our life. And a whole, of all, whole lot of us call our Christianity, what it really is, is just choosing Jesus when we don't know what else to do. And we, just, we ask for help from God when we don't know what else to do. But, but really and truly, to call ourselves after God's own people, we ought to be walking in a consummate relationship with Him at all times, ever evolving in this relationship with Christ. This was part of what Jonah's problem was. So, that's just the side note. All right, let's look at verse 2. So let's look at his prayer. <clears throat> and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this... I, I can't help but put my emotions of what I think Jonah's feeling. So when I read this, just pardon my reading and just read it for yourself. But, Oh Lord, is this not why I said when I was yet in my country, when you tapped me on the shoulder and told me to... This is why I went to Tarshish. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. And by the way, he would know slow to anger because Jonah is quick to anger. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that you would do something like this. I knew that you would forgive those people. That's why I didn't want to go and tell them how good you are. They don't deserve it. Do you hear how Jonah is justifying his disobedience? He's justifying his actions. Now what Jonah is doing is he is consenting to be obedient. Because he knew that he couldn't fight against God, right? I mean, Jonah tried to fight God. God threw him in a ship in a storm. He, he continued to be disobedient. God put him in the belly of a fish. I mean, Jonah's not going to win here. Jonah realizes that. And so what Jonah does, and many of you who may already be parents know how this works. You may say things to your kids like, you're going to clean your room. But they don't clean the room. And so you have to bring down the hammer, right? Go clean your room right now. And here they go. <laughs> well, you get obedience, but their heart is unmelted. So don't, don't give Jonah the benefit of the doubt here that just because he's on beat, he's, he is obedient... He is still very unmelted. He just knows he can't win. So the first step of our faith is being obedience, is surrender. The second part of our faith is learning to do it with the right character, to do it for the right reasons. Jonah has not learned those right reasons yet. So we continue to go forward. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord... Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
I mean, can you imagine Jonah? Jonah, by the way, is revealing so much sin in his own heart. He's revealing it. But he says, A repentant Nineveh is not a world that I want to live in. I will not be equal to those people. And the Lord, with the greatest sarcasm that I think God can muster without sin, verse 4 says, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? In English, that would be translated, Really, Jonah? I mean, I just see Jonah just flailing at God, and God's like, Jonah, grow up. I want to say this too. It is God's will for Nineveh to come to faith. No doubt about that. But I really, I really feel like he used Jonah not for Nineveh, but for Jonah. God's call on Jonah wasn't for Nineveh. God could have used any number of prophets to do that. God wanted Jonah because he wanted to give Jonah a heart transplant. Not just Nineveh. So this is, uh, Jonah is revealing to us a disease. And it's, it's twofold. There, there's two parts to it. Both are a disease, but together very dangerous. Number one, Jonah is an idolater. Now he may be a closet idolater, but he is an idolater. If you remember in Jonah chapter 2 verse 8, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. So Jonah is admitting that he recognizes idolatry in his life and he is trying to relent from it, but he is far from relenting. Proof is the first couple of verses in chapter 4. Now Jonah's idol is that he loves his racial identity. He is very, very proud of who he is and where he came from. When the sailors on the ship said to him, Who are you? What do you do? Where do you come from? They give him this list of questions to answer. The first thing Jonah says is, I am a Hebrew. And that's a big deal for Hebrews. Because even in Jesus' time, and we're many, many, many generations after after Jonah, they are still identifying as Abraham's people. We are God's chosen people because our father was Abraham. And this was very prevalent in their day as well. We are somebody because of where we came from. We are Hebrews. We are God's special people. And so when Jonah identifies, he identifies first as a Hebrew and as a worshiper of Almighty God, which, by the way, he is not. He thinks he is. But what you think you are is not how you will be judged. You will give yourself the benefit of the doubt. God won't. He'll judge you based on your, not obedience, upon your heart. Jonah's idol is that he loves his racial identity. He loves his status as a leader in the prosperous nation of Israel. And the Ninevites, now listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to share some really good, I think good, practical wisdom for us in our context for just a few moments. So bear, bear with me. Nineveh threatens everything that Jonah identifies as. He identifies as a Hebrew. Nineveh threatens that. 
identifies as God's special people, bound by God's law. Nineveh threatens that. Everything that Jonah lives for and is prideful for, Nineveh threatens it. And so, as a result, an unchanged heart, when you feel threatened, you hate things that threaten you. It's natural. I'm not judging. I'm saying that when Nineveh threatens everything Jonah loves, and so he hates them. They threaten to take away what he loves. They've already taken away some of it. He identifies with a people group instead of God's kingdom. He is a righteous racist. He cannot tolerate different. He holds grudges. He loves justice but despises mercy unless he qualifies and then he wants all he can get. So let's review what idolatry really is. We may have a problem because we don't see Jonah bowing down to a statue. Idolatry is when, if you take a notes, this is a good one. Idolatry is when you build your identity on anything other than God. So we all do it. And I, this is where I, I need you to, to think outside of your holding on, okay? So just let go for a moment. We all identify with something. We, we allow something to define us. It's an internal dialogue. We don't do it. We don't do it intentionally. It just happens by part of nature. We tell ourselves this. And so write this down. I have worth because whatever it may be. Okay? So think about that. I have worth because... And you can fill in the gap. And you probably don't wake up every day and think this question. But we do subconsciously ask this all of the time. I have value because I have worth because I am important because I'm good looking. I'm funny. I'm easy to put up with. I have value because I'm an encouraging person. I'm kind. I am I am important or I am valuable because I am prosperous. I can help people. I am laid back. I am valuable or worth. I have worth because I'm athletic, because I'm caring, because I'm a pushover. I let people take advantage of me and so they like me. There's lots of reasons. And we say to ourselves, I have value. Some of us may err on this side. I have value because I'm a good mother, because I'm a good spouse, because I'm a good father. So what we begin to do is wherever it is that we find our value, we place our identity in that, and we can't help but lean into it. We begin to exercise in that direction, and we become proud of it. Now we don't think about it, it just comes naturally. But before we know it, we begin to identify with things other than Jesus Christ, because we find value in things other than Jesus Christ. And so if somebody appreciates me or somebody gives me some attention or somebody pats me on the back, then of course, I've got to exercise it. Now listen, we know this really, really well. When we start to feel good about our identity, we exacerbate our identity. And we give ourselves into it even more because now we have to compete. Because whenever we feel good about our muscles and somebody walks in the room and they're bigger, we feel threatened. And I hate them. When a woman feels good about herself, she looks in the mirror, she gets herself all done, she feels confident in her dress, and she walks out, and she sees another woman 
Not that her husband sees, but that she sees and feels threatened by her. I hate her. We don't do it on purpose. We don't think through it, but we feel it. Guys identify with achievements, what they've accomplished. Women do that by relationships. They compare themselves up here. Men compare themselves right here. Women compare themselves up here. But I think all of those things are done unintentionally. But I, I want to clearly state that's why Jesus identifying with Jesus Christ in every moment of every day, every thought captive to Christ, take up our cross daily and follow after Him. That's why that has to be so intentional. Because if we're not intentionally identifying with Jesus, we are unintentionally identifying with everything else. And we want to do that. We want to belong. Everybody wants to belong. Everybody wants to have a people. This really begins in middle school where kids start asking themselves, who am I really? I mean, who am I? Who do, which group? And you know, everybody's got a different way to fix their hair and a different way to dress. And kids start saying to themselves, who do I want to dress like? Because who I want to dress like is, who, is whose people I want to be in. I mean, people who ride Harleys, you know, they stick their arm out there. I don't, they're complete strangers. But when another Harley comes by, we belong to each other. We get each other. You can watch women when they're shopping and one pregnant woman looks at another pregnant woman and it's like, I get it, sister. You know? I mean, it's like we belong together. We belong together. We get it. We know each other. We're in the group. So I just recently bought a Jeep and I found, I didn't know this. In all of my years, I did not know this, that there, there is a, a Jeep group. I started wondering. I started wondering. I got this Jeep. People started waving at me all the time. Every other Jeep's waving at me. And I'm thinking to myself, man, everybody thinks I'm somebody else. Until I realized. I asked somebody. They're like, you know, there's a group now. I said, no, it's a Jeep, Jeep, like Jeep Wrangler people wave at Jeep Wrangler people. And it's this. It's just not any, it's just not any wave. It's a special wave. Hey, listen, I'm serious. And if, you, if, if your Wrangler is not stock, you don't wave at the stock Jeeps. <laughs> so, you know what I do now? Because I want to belong, right? Everybody wants to belong. They want to identify with something. I remember, I remember that in school, dressing like an athlete one day and dressing like a prep the next day, trying to figure out where do I belong. I know it's painful. It's hard to try to fit in and identify. Who am I? Am I a hunter? Am I a gamer? Am I a this? Am I a that? What do I like? I really like to do this, but this isn't the popular crowd. So I'm going to force myself to do something that I don't want to do so that I can be more popular and find value in that. And we get so frustrated with that. It's empty too, by the way, because that popularity is always moving. You know why? Because it doesn't exist. The popular kids wishes that they were something else. It's constantly moving, constantly evolving. And so it just keeps our attention off of identifying with Jesus. To which group do I belong? Pick a box. And we want to be loyal to our box. Christians do it too. That's why church 
denominations are so important. It's very important to know who you belong to so you know who your people are. Which translation do you use? What kind of songs do you sing? What kind of traditions do you have? Oh, you guys do that? Oh, we just put people in little boxes and say, I'm loyal to this box. All of you other people. Say, but that's not that bad, right? I mean, it's not that bad. I remember when I was in school, they said, you know, who, who are you? Who are you going to identify with? And we ask ourselves that. But now it's, what am I? Now apparently we can actually identify with even different genders than ourselves naturally. I mean, isn't that crazy? It's crazy. Who do you, but I know who you are, but how do you identify? That identify is so important. But it just keeps us from identifying with Jesus Christ and His truth. So then we become loyal to our identity. And then we have to protect it. We have to protect that identity because I'm telling you, you're going to be, your identity is always going to be threatened by other people who want your identity. So we're protected. We become very loyal, very protective of it. And we become, it consumes us. So we identify where we're loyal. And when our identity is apart from Jesus or only includes Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of that too. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so if I'm including Jesus in my identity, partial idolatry is idolatry. You think of marriage, men especially. Think about that. How would your wife feel about your loyalty if you walked up and said, Honey, of all of the women that I'm loyal to, you're one of them. I mean, in essence, that's what we do with the Lord. Lord, of everything that I'm loyal to, you're on the list. And God would say, Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be a part of your identity. God forgive us. So when you build your identity on anything other than God, you can still call yourself after God's name. But you won't know anything about God, His mission, or how He feels about us. And so when your identity is built on anything other than God's love, God's purpose, God's acceptance in our life, then here's what's going to eventually happen. You're going to become fearful. Your fear leads to anger. Your anger leads to hate. Because in your mind, there is something about you that you think or you feel makes you worthy. And you're always going to be threatened. And that threat is going to seem like it's going to be insecurity. It's going to be self-doubt. It's going to be jealousy. It's going to be envy. It's going to be always doing tons of self-talk. Anytime someone threatens where you find worth or value, you're going to get defensive, angry, fearful, and hateful. And you're going to grow to resent the world. And what happens is the people group that you identify with is going to keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. You wonder, and I don't mean this to be judgmental or critical, but you see this a lot in churches where, where not, just, not just in churches, okay? So I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on the bride of Christ. But, but you see this a lot because the older we get, the more open we should be to love. Right? Because we're ever expanding our love because of our identities in Christ. But what we begin to find is the older we get, the more rigid and stiff-necked we get. And the more narrow, well, not heaven is, but more narrow my people group is. 
So you start running into people who are just angry and complain and bitter. They've been in church 60 years and they're mad about everything. You know why? Because they've not had their identity in Christ. They've had their identity in church. Or their identity has been in marriage. Or their identity has been in rule keeping. But not in Christ. God forgive us for what we've turned it into. And God has called us to go to Nineveh. And we can't even get our own house in order. There's some other signs too. There's unwillingness to forgive. This is a a symptom of this disease. An unwillingness to forgive. If you're not capable of forgiving, then you have forgotten how you were forgiven. Maybe self-pity. Self-pity is a huge symptom of this. In other words, people don't see the same worth in you that you see in yourself. It comes across, it sounds sometimes like this in your head because you'd never say it out loud because you're threatened and you want to protect it. But my kids do not appreciate anything that I do for them as their mother, as their father. My wife does not care. She takes me for granted. My husband, he doesn't care. We make ourselves out to be the victim. It may even look like an employer. We say to ourselves, you know, I don't ever get any appreciation around this place. Nobody ever knows or sees the things that I do. That's all symptoms of the wrong identity. Identifying with the wrong things. You see all these in Jonah. The second part is idolatry is when you desire anything more than you desire God. When I find more happiness in being successful than I find in knowing God, more delight in being rich, more delight in the dream of being happily married than knowing God, Jonah finds more delight in the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of her enemies than he does in knowing and delighting in God. And that that stems from not having his identity with God. Jonah should be thinking, man, if God is willing to forgive Nineveh, he, he must be willing to forgive Israel. If God is willing to forgive the king of the most heinous country in the world, then surely God would forgive me. I think one of the things that we think, this is a small view of God, like like God has grace in a bucket over here, right? And every time somebody comes to God for grace, God dips out of that bucket and gives it to them. So Jonah's over here saying, I don't want them to dip out of God's grace bucket because I'm going to need all of that grace I can get. But God's grace, if every human being in the whole wide world said yes to Jesus today, there's grace left over. We don't share God's grace. We don't share God's mercy. It's in endless supply. It's the one thing that you can give away and you can't give it away. It's you always are going to have it. I think Jonah is threatened by becoming equal with them in grace and mercy. And he cannot fathom the thought of that. Because he is so much better than those people. Listen, Jonah, you don't even share salvation. You, you, we point people to truth. That's, that's what we do. We point people to truth. I don't share grace. That belongs to the Lord. I don't share mercy. I mean, every, I've got all the grace and all the mercy I need in this very moment, and, and we'll have it no matter what happens. It'll always be there. You don't have to share it. 
You have it. You don't have to give it away. It doesn't come out of yours. It comes out of God, and He gives to each one as He needs it. Our responsibility is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we share. The thing that has been given to us is we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and let His Holy Spirit do that work. Jonah doesn't want to share. Think of this this anger, this fear, this hate that Jonah has, this hypocrisy that he's blind to. I mean, I just think about these emotions and we say, wow, those are terrible. I mean, they're sin. I mean, don't get me wrong. They are definitely sin. But they're productive. And what I mean by that is, how many of you love to have like your house filled with smoke? I mean, nobody wants that. But it's productive if it helps you find the source of the fire, right? I would much prefer to have a smoky house than my children destroyed in a fire. So the smoke actually allows me to know that there's a problem and draws my attention to the source. That's what, that's what this message does today. Nobody wants fear and anger and hate, but they're a, they're a symptom that there is a fire kindling inside of us. And now that we know that that fire exists, we can go to the source. And I don't know what your idol is. I don't know where you find value. I don't know where you find identity. But where you find your identity is where you'll find your altar to your idols. And your altar to your idols are the things that will keep you from the heart and the mission of Jesus Christ. So part one of Jonah's disease is he's an idolater. Part two of Jonah's disease is that Jonah is ignorant. And I don't mean that funny. It's just hard to say ignorant and not smile. But Jonah is ignorant of the grace that God has extended toward him. He has forgotten. He's forgotten who he was. And because he has forgotten who he was, he must forget who he is. So he begins to identify with the wrong things. He should be identifying with God instead of a people group. He should be identifying with God's kingdom, not Israel's kingdom. But Jonah has forgotten where he came from and the grace that was extended to him. I want you to think about this. Yes, Nineveh is filled with murderers, rapists, serial killers. They are mutilators. They are destroyers. These are terrible people. Terrible people. The worst of the worst. But they don't know God. They've never heard of God. They've never worshipped Him. They do not have Scripture in their own language. They're doing what sinners do. You know what sinners do? They sin. Every one of them. They sin. That's what it looks like to be without truth. But now watch this. In the story, nobody has received more grace than Jonah. Even after Nineveh repents. Nobody has received more grace than Jonah. Because Jonah looked right in the face of a God he knows and said, No. Which is worse? Sins of ignorance or sins of rebellion? Listen, this is dangerous stuff now because God has made His will very clear to the one who knows God best. 
It's very similar to Adam's original sin. When God said, Adam, no. And Adam looked at God and said, no. I'll have it my own way. I identify with the woman you gave me, Lord. And the woman said, but I identify with the serpent that you put here, Lord. Everybody wants to identify with something else. But if they would have kept their eyes on the Lord, it would been a whole different story. Jonah's sin is the same sin as the first sin. I'm not absolving Nineveh's sin. I'm simply saying Jonah has forgotten the grace that he has received. And when you forget the grace that you received, it's harder to forgive, it's harder to love, it's harder to be generous, it's harder to be compassionate, because you have forgotten who you were, therefore you do not know who you are. Does this make sense? How do you know? Well, you get resentful when God seems to be blessing people in ways they don't deserve. You begin to determine who is worthy to receive truth. You begin to be very careful with encouragement because you don't want to encourage people the wrong uh, way where they may actually feel better about themselves because they don't deserve to feel better. When God commands you to be generous with others, you resist it. You may say to yourself, why God, I earned my money. I deserve it. They make poor decisions. They don't deserve it. That's how you know you have the disease. But when you see yourself as a recipient of that grace, then God's compassion flows through you. God's mercy flows through you. His love flows through you. The truth flows through you. And when grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, those things blockade up in you, you begin to pray resentful prayers and angry prayers, blasphemous prayers, it's because you got an idol stuck in your conduit. And you may be the last one to know it. That's why it's so good to have godly friends around you to be able to point those blind spots out to you. See, honestly, I think Jonah saw his sin and Nineveh's sin as two different categories. Jonah hadn't killed anybody. He hadn't destroyed anybody. He hadn't mutilated anybody. He hadn't raped anybody. So when we look at people around the world, people next door, doesn't matter, and we see them in a different category, that's proof you've forgotten where you came from. And if you don't know where you came from, you can't possibly know who you are. Sometimes those that are the farthest away, like Nineveh, are actually the closest to truth. Sometimes that those that think they're the closest to the truth perhaps could be the furthest away. So this is Jonah's disease, idolatry and ignorance. And after all this, he's consented to do God's will. By chapter 4, Jonah is no longer directly defiant of God. He's actually doing God's will. But this is the picture of most religious people. Religious people are, well, I don't want to go to hell, and I don't want to be in the belly of a fish, so I guess I'll do what God tells me. But that doesn't mean you've come to delight yourself in the Lord. You will only delight yourself in the Lord when you have the identity of the Lord all over you every moment of every day. Now let's move forward. Look at verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. That word booth could also be translated tabernacle or tent. 
uh, and made a, a dwelling for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. So what Jonah is hoping here is that their repentance wears off. Can you believe that? They have said, fast, sackcloth, ashes, king to cattle, we're all changed people. We're going to, and maybe, maybe God will relent. We already know God's going to relent because of the last verse in chapter 3. Jonah does not know that. Jo- Jonah then, he says, be 40 days, you'll be overturned. And I don't know how long he's there. It takes him a couple days. He's preaching a day. It uh, takes him a day and a half to walk through the city. I don't know how many days goes by, but he's saying, let's say 30, 39, 38 days left of the 40 days. Instead of going back home, Jonah could have done several things. He could have sat in the city and he said, well, I did not expect this. Praise the Lord. Let's set up a group of people. In fact, this is what it looks like to honor the Lord. Here are the Ten Commandments. Here are the feast days. Here, And he could have created this Great opportunity to be, make Nineveh a lighthouse. Man, what a testimony that would have been to the world. He also could have said, you know what, I'm going to go all back home. My job is done and it's complete. I'm going to go back home. Good luck to y'all. I wouldn't have blamed him if it had done that. Jonah could also have said, you know what, give me a few days. I've got 40. I'm going to run home really quick and I'm going to get me a passel load full of other prophets and we're going to come and we're going to create disciple groups. That's a great idea. Thank you, Jonah. Here's some money. <laughs> You know, I mean, these would be great things to do. But instead, what Jonah does is he takes what belongings he has. He travels just a little bit east, goes up in the mountains, creates this little lean-to, and waits for the brimstone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being filled with such hate that God would give you a message of repentance and you wouldn't share it with the right heart? Listen, I don't want to be too preachy, and I certainly don't want to be judgmental. But I'm afraid there are so many of us that God has put the gospel in our mouth, told us to give it to the lost. But we do not have our delight. It's not in the Lord, and it's not in seeing souls saved. We said yes to Jesus. But it's almost like we've said yes to Jesus and we've just camped out waiting for hell to consume the rest of the world. Waiting for the lightning bolts. I just, I don't know, in my mind, I just seem kind of lean back against the pole and just popping popcorn. 28 more days. Front row seat. Now listen, what Jonah is waiting for is their destruction, which means that he's actually angry that they didn't kill him. He would have preferred them to go ahead and been destroyed or to destroy themselves. I mean, it just, it just doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make logical sense. Angry that they repented. Angry that they had a change of heart. I mean, I guess what he would prefer is them not to have a change of heart, and he wouldn't be alive right now in the East. So the Lord appointed, this is verse 6, the Lord appointed a plant, made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's funny to me, Jonah loves when he's blessed. But he despises when God blesses others who don't deserve it. Jonah is so lucky. Good thing he deserves it. Verse 7. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And that's when we find out that Jonah is a middle school teenage girl. (laughs) Extreme much, Jonah? You don't get your way, you run away, you reluctantly, because you know you can't win, bring the message of warning from God to people. We're beginning to have a little bit of hope for Jonah. I mean, there's a little bit of, at least he's doing the right things. But now here he is, ready to die again. This is the second time God asked Jonah, Jonah, you have a right to be angry here? First time he didn't answer. It's just like your kids. Do you want me to come back there? Do you want me to pull the car over? They're not going to answer you the first time. You keep asking it, finally, no. That's exactly what's going on right here. God is raising a teenager. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. We won't have time to read all of that, but I do just want to make a a quick case for this. God is talking about idols and idolatry. And He says they have eyes, but they can't see. And they have a mouth, but they can't speak. And they have ears, and they can't hear. And they have a nose, but they can't smell. And they have hands, but they can't touch. And those who worship them become just like them. Meaning that we when we put anything in place of God, we begin not to be able to see things correctly. We begin to see with the eyes of our idols. We begin to feel the way of our idols. We begin to hear what we want to hear that helps us value our idols. Because that's where we find our value. And God calls it out for what it is. We become what we worship. If you're not becoming more like Jesus as a follower of Jesus, then it's because you don't have Jesus as the center of your altar. Impartial idolatry is idolatry, pure and simple. I think it's interesting that Jonah is experiencing this blessing of the plant and he is fine, he is sleepy, he is, he is resting, he is comforted, in fact, the Bible says. And he is assuming, and I want you to listen to this very, very closely, he is assuming that God is favoring him because of the blessings that he's experiencing. He has ascribed to the, when I get what I want, that's proof of God's favor mentality. So I would say this to you, and God I think proves it right here, that just because you're comfortable is not proof of God's approval. Your comfort actually might be used as a testimony against you one day. And I think there's so many people that because they get what they want, or because they're living in comfort, it's proof that God's, or, or maybe even you're in sin, but you're not experiencing the consequences. And if you're not having to deal with the consequences, then that's proof of God's approval. What it will be 
is used as a testimony against you one day. Your comfort does not determine God's approval. Your full heart obedience is proof of God's approval. Verse 10, almost done. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. It came into being in a night, perished in a night. In other words, what God is doing is diminishing the value. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? God says, you're about a plant? I mean, there are souls that are damned to hell, and you're worried about a plant? You got your head just a little bit burned and you're falling apart, wishing to die? Worried more about your comfort than the souls of Nineveh? Think of all the tears you cried last year. How many of them were lost souls? How, how, how much passion and compassion are we having? How, when's the last time you've prayed? I mean, like really prayed for people who are doing missionary work to reach people who've never responded to Jesus Christ. Look at your checkbook. Tell me how much you're worried about the things that burdens God, the things that makes God angry. Jonah, how could you possibly look at a massive destruction? I mean, there are innocent children that were just born in Nineveh and you want me to destroy them? But you're angry that a plant withered that you had no responsibility in? Jonah, I care about those babies as much as I care about your babies. I care about those people as much as I care about you and Israel. How dare you think you're so much better than them because of what country you're from? Listen, when nationalism gets in the way of Christianity, there's a serious problem. When we care more about policy than we do about people who are lost without Jesus Christ, there is a problem. And we don't have to talk about that in great detail today. In fact, we won't because we don't have time. It's a very, very complicated issue. But I think there's a whole lot of groups that we put ourselves in. We need to hang them up all on the shelf and be Jesus people. What would Jesus do in every situation? How would He love? How would He reach? How does His heart feel? What does He cry over? At least care about the cattle, Jonah. They didn't do anything to you. And that's why God says that. Jonah, you even want me to kill their cattle? Their cattle's innocent. So all of a sudden we find out, you're not wanting justice. Jonah doesn't want justice. Justice would be to only destroy the wicked men who've done bad things around the world. Jonah wants them obliterated, which says a whole lot more about Jonah's heart than it does the Ninevites' sin. So let's look at the next verse. How does it end? Oops. That's it. How does it end? I don't know. I think I know. Most ancient scholars believe Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. If... Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. 
It seems to me that he would leave that open-ended because it was open-ended to him and he got it. And he offers us the same question that God offered to him. What are you going to do about it? I think this is Jonah's last opportunity to say, don't be like me. Hard-headed, stubborn. Don't be like me. So wrapped up in your identity that you forget Christ's identity. Here's what we learn from the book of Jonah. God loves Nineveh. God loves Nineveh. Don't you care about those that one day are going to be overthrown? They're going to stand before a righteous judge one day. And they're going to be overthrown for all eternity. And we're worried about a plant? We're worried about our momentary comfort? When their entire people groups, there are 2.2 billion people in the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Half of them don't have one word translated from God's breath to theirs. And we're worried about plants? Romans chapter 9 verse 1 through 3 says, Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Do you hear that? Paul says there's not a moment that goes by that I don't feel pain for the people that are around me that are lost. I would forfeit my salvation for them to have a chance at it. But Paul knew where he came from, which means he knew who he was. And because he knew how to identify, he knew how to help other people identify. We need to pray. I know, you, I know that we have surrendered to the Lord, but we need to start praying that God would melt our hearts. We're obedient, but we need to write motivation because that obedience can still lead to hatred, anger. I mean, you think about, listen... <clears throat> Those who follow Islam, they only follow them what they've been taught. It's just what they know. Most of them never heard of Jesus, not, not in truth. They, they, they know about us what we know about them. And by the way, turn the stinking news off. It's destroying you. It, it, you just might as well turn on a soap opera. It's the same lies. Both, si- both, both of them. Both sides of the, of the, of the, uh, of the aisle. Our hope is not going to be found in legislating that. Our hope is found in adopting identity in Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is found. I mean, I would think that, you know, they're out to get us and they hate us. Who said so? The world? I mean, when you walk into a group of people that are not like you and you're, hmm, I've got to protect myself. Boy, that sounds like Jonah, not Jesus. God, forgive us. We're the hope of the world. And by the way, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What are we afraid of? That someone might repent? Yeah, I think that's right because they don't deserve it. Kind of makes us a little angry when we find out that former terrorists have converted to Christianity. We go, hmm, I doubt that. That ought to be our prayer. I mean, we ought to spend hours at the altar crying over these things. 
2.2 billion. A third of the world's never heard of Jesus. And we're worried about the comfort of our plant. It's so funny to me because the thing that you're leaning into for identity and comfort, that was given to you by God too. You didn't do that. Your job, you didn't get that. The money you make, that doesn't belong to you. Everything is the Lord's. And you care more about that than you do people? God forgive us. Well, so Jonah is a literary masterpiece. Literary masterpiece. What that means is there's a lot of literary devices throughout the book. I, I don't ever want to do that. That's not preaching. But, but this one particular thing, I, don't, I won't go through all of it, but you go back through the book of Jonah, four chapters, and you'll see great, 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 exceedingly great, 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 over and over and over. Great city of Nineveh. I won't give them all. There's about a dozen or maybe just a few more times that that Hebrew word great is used throughout the book of Jonah. The point is God's mission is great. Nineveh's wickedness is great, but God's grace is greater. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites is great, but God's compassion for them is greater. I just wonder if we have felt the greatness of that call to be wrapped up into the identity of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is no middle ground. I know we all want to be there. We want to be a, yeah, well, I'm a, I'm a you know, kind of do-it-myself, independent kind of thinker. I'm a kind of make my own way. And more, I'm kind of proud of who I am and where I identify. And, oh, yeah, I'm also a Christian. That's the middle ground. And there is no middle ground. Everything that we are and everything that we have is a tool to remember where we came from, who we are, and to help people find and follow Jesus. That's your identity. That's your identity. We have been shown grace. And we have been given freely. Freely give. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of Jonah. And while we don't know how it ends with Jonah, I'm not so sure we know how it ends for us. But there's a lot of decisions for us to make. We can't control Jonah's decisions, but we can control ours. And today we may be obedient with a hard heart. But Lord, I pray that you would begin to melt our hearts. We may be seeing through idolatrous eyes, touching through idolatrous hands, hearing through idolatrous ears. But Lord, you can begin to melt that. And I just pray this morning that you would use this series of messages as a beacon of light and hope for a world around us. Lord, I pray that you would grab our attention and let us to see you like we've not seen you before, that we would be warmed by a reminder of your grace that found us when we were on our worst day. And may we constantly see ourselves with the identity of Jesus Christ. Lord, if I try to impress you, I know that my best day is as filthy rags. So Lord, when I knock on the throne room door, I pray that you would see Jesus. When you extend the scepter to me, Lord, that you would see Jesus. I pray that I would be so wrapped up in the identity of Christ that I forget former things and that truly all things will become new. 
And not just, Lord, for myself, but for my neighbors, my family, ultimately the nations. So use us, Lord. You want us to go to Nineveh? We'll go. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope that this message has brought you closer to finding and following Jesus. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.